Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdall. We get a second chance, we don't get a third chance, right? Carbon capture tried to take off in 2010, right? And didn't, right? I think the incentives didn't happen. Waxman market, all these, everyone promised there was going to be incentives or taxes and none of them came to be, right? There was a financial crisis that was part of that. And so it's kind of like, that's clean tech 1.0, right? That didn't really work out well. If we don't scale carbon capture now, we're not going to have time for it to play a big role in 2050. I mean, I think it's not optional, right? So you can, we can have fun academic arguments about does carbon capture play a role in the power sector? I think it does. Other people might think it doesn't. That's you know a fair argument to have. But there are so many industries and so many countries with different weather and wind and temperature. Or if you want to decarbonize fertilizer, if you want to decarbonize cement, and some things inherently produce CO2 from the stone that goes into cement. It's not even coming from fossil fuels, right? If we want to decarbonize airplanes, you know, Pulling CO2 from the air is going to be a key part of abating things you don't otherwise have options to do. So we need to have carbon capture. Uh, the thing I worry about is less that if someone else ate our lunch, that'd be great. Like the goal is decarbonization. If someone invents a like, you know, feather light battery that can solve the whole energy transition, it might not be good for our company, but it'd be great for the world. Right. So I think that's what you hope for is that if you don't supply gigatons of, of carbon reduction, it's because someone else did it better. But I think what I worry about would be that things don't scale fast enough. All right, Adam, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you. It's great to be here, Nick. So let's dive right into the deep end. How would you get folks listening in up to speed, the zero to 10, if you will, or perhaps the zero to eight on Eight Rivers and the work that you all are doing? Sure. So Eight Rivers, we are now in our 15th year. So we are sort of a startup, but sort of a mature company at this point. And we do everything from inventing technologies to building it in the real world and licensing it uh, with a focus on carbon capture. So we're a carbon capture technology and deployment engine with the mission to build the infrastructure of tomorrow today as part of our goal to help decarbonize the world with energy that's both low cost and low carbon. To do that, we're right now focused on three verticals. We focus on clean power, which is probably what we're best known for with the alum cycle that can run on a range of fuels to create power with all the CO2 inherently captured. We also work on capturing CO2 directly from the air with a technology called calcite. And we have a clean hydrogen technology that makes clean hydrogen from natural gas, which is then a fuel you can combust without any associated emissions or use it to make fertilizers. Those are the three big things we're working on now. We, of course, have a number of great ideas <laughs> you know, in, in the background that we haven't been public about yet that hopefully will be the next you know, technology we announce in the coming years. Awesome. Yeah, super excited to dig into all three of those core pillars and perhaps even get some hints at what's coming in the future. But why don't we talk a little bit about you yourself as well? What's your role at the company and, and how long have you been at Eight Rivers? And perhaps also you can give us a little perspective on the journey that brought you there in the first place. So I've kind of focused my career on decarbonization. I was previously in the policy space working at a foundation called ClearPath. I got to work a lot with DOE and on carbon capture incentives, which is how I came across Eight Rivers and what they were doing. I joined Jump Ship from the kind of more nonprofit side to actually wanting to build projects and technologies back in 2018. So I think that technically is five years ago at this point, which yeah. <laughs> it both feels like a lot shorter and also a lot longer, kind of depending on 
how I think about it. And I run strategy at this point. So I oversee the strategy of the company. That means everything from looking, you know, how we prioritize between technologies, what are the best places for us to deploy our projects and technology. So it's really a fun role that I get to touch a lot of the different things that the business does. And we have so many smart, talented people here. And I just feel really lucky I get to work with them every day. Yeah. And I'm sure that in, you know, even in your five years at the company, the portfolio has matured and perhaps expanded in many ways. Maybe you can help us because the climate tech space and the energy space has shifted so much or accelerated so much in those five years too. I'd love to get a little perspective on kind of what that maturation process has looked like over the past five years, because I'm sure the conversations you all were having in 2018 have shifted somewhat meaningfully to this point in 2023. We were definitely in carbon capture before it was cool. Uh, (laughs) We've been... (laughs) I think 2018, when I joined, was maybe the first turning point uh, where you kind of had growing global demand for decarbonization and you actually had some initial incentives put in place. I think if you think about, man, we've been working on carbon capture for a long time. Why don't we have it yet? Right. Like solar and wind, you know, are more advanced. They've kind of already kind of moving up that hockey stick curve. I think the reason is that we didn't it's always cheaper to emit carbon than capture it, right? Even if you are an ethanol plant in Iowa and your process literally has pure 100% CO2 coming out of a pipe, it costs you money to do something with it, to compress it, to inject it, to use it to make a building material. And for too long, it's been free to release it, right? And let it mingle in the atmosphere and cause global warming. So I think carbon capture really had a market problem of... The technology, many of the technologies are old, like shockingly old. And right. you look at in Massachusetts, they ran a post combustion carbon capture plant in the 90s. Yeah. The 1990s, <laughs> right? Like they barely had the internet at that point, right? They, they were <laughs> operating this plant because they needed the CO2. So I think there was a lack of demand for the product. So I think in 2018, when that was when that started to change, there was the first iteration of 45Q at a lower credit level, $50 per ton. And you have this growing demand for carbon capture. I joined the company thinking that now was the perfect moment and the rocket ship was going to take off. <laughs> I think it was still a couple of years early. I, I think looking now, we still had that experience back then when you were looking to deal with big companies. They weren't thinking about it already, right? You would be, oh, you go and you talk to, you know, Megacorp, whoever. They might be interested. They want to do the right thing. But also like, it's clearly not in their annual metrics. No one's asking them about it. They haven't thought about it before. That's changed. I think something we've really seen from 2018 to 2022, I think the IRA just supercharged it, is that every company that touches energy is thinking about this. They're thinking about their energy supply. They're thinking about their carbon intensity. They're thinking about their future regulatory risks. They're thinking about how they can make money off of that. And God, does that make the job a lot easier? Because ultimately, you know, we have to partner with we don't consume the energy, the steam, the hydrogen, the fertilizer. So you're always part of a big ecosystem. And I think the ecosystem surrounding carbon capture has really gotten a lot more mature, where it's now really possible to do big things a lot faster than it was five years ago. Yeah, it is such an interesting dichotomy that, as you note, some of these technologies have been around for a long time. There have even been folks you know, that have developed ostensibly successful carbon capture projects around the world. I'm thinking about, you know, some projects in Scandinavia, for instance, where they've captured and stored a lot of carbon underground. And at the same time, you have a lot of folks perhaps on the outside looking in saying, you know, hey, this has been promised for a long time, but it's really not happening necessarily at the scales 
that were expected. So uh, it's an interesting moment to be sitting in carbon capture, hoping that this is kind of the inflection point again, as you noted, where it really starts taking off and scaling and we see it deployed in a lot of different applications across the US and across the world, but also still a little bit of a wait and see and still some skepticism from a lot of you know, folks kind of seeing it as a technology that oil and gas, for instance, has touted for a long time, but hasn't necessarily commercialized super significantly. We get a second chance, we don't get a third chance, right? <laughs> Carbon capture tried to take off in 2010, right? And didn't, right? And I think the incentives didn't happen. Waxman market, all these, everyone promised there was going to be incentives or taxes and none of them came to be, right? There was a financial crisis that was part of that. And so it's kind of like, that's clean tech 1.0, right? That didn't really work out well. If we don't scale carbon capture now, we're not going to have time for it to play a big role in 2050. I mean, I think it's not optional, right? So you can we can have fun academic arguments about, does carbon capture play a role in the power sector? I think it does. Other people might think it doesn't. That's you know a fair argument to have. But there are so many industries and so many countries with different weather and wind and temperature. Or if you want to decarbonize fertilizer, if you want to decarbonize cement, some things inherently produce CO2 from the stone that goes into cement. It's not even coming from fossil fuels, right? If we want to decarbonize airplanes, you know, Pulling CO2 from the air is going to be a key part of abating things you don't otherwise have options to do. So we need to have carbon capture. Uh, the thing I worry about is less that if someone else ate our lunch, that'd be great. Like the goal is decarbonization. If someone invents a like, you know, feather light battery that can solve the whole energy transition, it might not be good for our company, but it'd be great for the world, right? So I think that's what you hope for is that if you don't supply gigatons of, of carbon reduction, it's because someone else did it better. But I think what I worry about would be that things don't scale fast enough. And no, there actually isn't another way to make cement or steel or supply fertilizer to a growing global population. And so we just missed the decarbonization targets. I think that's more what I worry about is that in 2035, someone's like, oh, great, let's turn on the spigot of carbon capture. And you can't, like, it takes years to scale. You're scaling up labor, you're scaling up pipe fitters, you're scaling up engineers, you can double at some reasonable rate, but if you're starting from a low number, you're going to have to double for 20 years to get to your targets for 2050. If we start now, that timing works. If we start in 10 years, it doesn't. So it really is now or never uh, for scaling the industry. Yeah. I mean, building all that infrastructure as well alongside kind of the workforce development is not a necessarily a fast thing. Pipelines, opportunities for storage, all that stuff. And I'm glad that you mentioned, yeah, it's not purely about can we put carbon capture on natural gas plants that we may need to play a role in the energy mix for the next 20, 30 years still. It's also about, as you said, products like steel and cement, which are some of the few products that humans produce at gigaton scale, have carbon emissions as a direct byproduct of their production. It's not even necessarily about the energy used to produce them. So those will hopefully be ripe markets for the application of carbon capture. We'll see. <laughs> it's also amazing if you if something feels like a small part of the problem, oh, like, you know, fertilizer production, like it's only 1% of global emissions. Like 1% of global emissions is massive. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like that's, you like, you think from like, oh, can we really build a business if we're addressing one or 2% of global emissions? Like totally, that's <laughs> like actually a great a great number. Yeah. Like there, I mean, transportation and the power sector get the most attention because they're the biggest, right? Those are the two giants in the room. And we're seeing them intermingle as you electrify at least light duty ground transport. 
they're starting to become a related problem, right? But even these things that feel niche, they're huge. I mean, you're talking about hundreds of millions of tons uh, of CO2 a year that is supplying something that's critical for human thriving. It's like, you're not going to not fertilize to produce the food that people need to eat or make the steel that you need to expand housing supply so that people have somewhere to live, right? So it's not, you know, even air travel, like people need to move around the world. So yeah, something like half of the global population is supported by food grown with synthetic fertilizers. So as much as it is important that we also develop, you know, different agricultural products and better fertilizers that don't produce as much nitrogenous runoff and stuff like that, it's still going to be a big component of global food supply chain. I did read something maybe over the last week or two, and I don't remember the person to cite it to who was saying that if CO2 wasn't such a big problem, you know, nitrogen, the nitrogen cycle and nitrogen runoff would be kind of top of everyone's mind. So yeah, if smart people out there have ideas for how we can deliver nutrients to crops but not have nitrogen runoff causing environmental issues downstream, God, that, that'd be an awesome innovation to see. Unfortunately, Nick, that's not one we have in our back pocket yet, but maybe I can go ask go ask the smart people here. <laughs> that's what I was going to quip about next. But why don't we talk a little bit about the carbon capture technology that you all are bringing to market? I know that there are numerous ways to capture carbon from a flu stack or in other settings. Um, what specifically are you all working on? We generally like working with oxy combustion. So when you light a campfire, right, it burns in the air. Right, but it's actually burning the oxygen in the air, which is about twenty percent. We like to do carbon capture where we actually operate from a hundred percent oxygen, and when you combust in a hundred percent oxygen, the only reaction products are CO two and water. So the carbon capture then becomes pretty easy. Making oxygen it's expensive, so that's your downside, but it makes things cheaper on the back end. So as I said, we have three verticals: power, hydrogen, and direct air capture. The power side is what we did first, or best known for something called the alum cycle, which has a CO2 turbine. So we combine that oxy combustion with instead of driving a, a turbine with steam or driving it with hot air, like like a, a jet does, we drive with hot, high pressure CO2. Um, and so that's what drives the turbine. One version of that is now a public company, which we're a minority owner called NetPower. So I won't speak to that because you know they're their own company at this point, and I, I don't even necessarily have the latest. We are advancing that same technology, however, on biomass. So a little bit more niche here, but if we can use crop waste or tree waste from you know lumber to make, to make buildings and furniture, you actually have a carbon neutral fuel source where CO2 comes from the air, you know, into a corn plant or into you know a pine tree in, in Alabama. We can use that as the fuel source to run this power plant and store the CO2 underground afterwards. So CO2 goes from the air into the tree, into the ground. So you can actually get something that's a little bit carbon negative and still produce power. So we're excited about that one. There's That's the biomass version of the alum cycle. And obviously we're pretty proud and excited to see kind of net, net power taking off. And it's, we probably all checked the stock ticker a little too much just because it's exciting to see something, you know, out in the world. And it was kind of inside of our offices for so long. And where are some of the, you know, projects that you're working on on the biomass side? Like, where is that being deployed or, or where are some of the sites that folks are, you know, at least evaluating deploying it? We haven't said anything publicly here yet. We're definitely still in the earlier stages. I would say we are very focused on U.S. deployments. Uh, the U.S. is really a great place to build carbon capture. We have incredible CO2 storage know-how and infrastructure and industry that other countries are going to spend five or 10 years trying to 
you know, get a fraction of. We've got thousands of miles of CO2 pipelines. We've got great data of the subsurface, right? So imaging of, you know, the different layers of rocks to know where you can and can't store that CO2. We've got a great regulatory regime. You have questions such as who owns the right to store CO2 in like a porous rock? Like we have... (laughs) It's, it's, it's a real question. Like yeah, you have, absolutely. Maybe I own a house. I own the house. Do I own the mineral rights under my house? Probably not. I haven't. I haven't checked actually. But I would assume <laughs> that, like, you know, if you own a house in some states, you might own the mineral rights. You might not. They separate this. You know, you have this existing just agreement between now all the parties in society of who owns what, and that means you can go out and you know permit a wind a wind plant there. You know who owns the wind, right? Like these kind of basic question you think we'd know plenty of places don't have them like it's not totally clear who owns that and so in the u.s we're farther along on those kind of things Uh, and also a great biomass supply so in the midwest you have great agricultural residue from this really really productive agricultural center that's probably not the first biomass project you'll see the first ones are probably going to be related to the timber industry in the southeast and northwest so the the tree basket of the u.s is in the Southeast, so kind of where we are, so North Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, really, really pr- uh, productive pine forests. We actually already, you know, this is how we make paper, <laughs> right? It's is through this. This is how you make the cardboard boxes that, that, that send you your packages that you order online, you know, kind of c- come from these and, you know, lumber, right? Wooden houses, wooden floors, chic wooden Brooklyn coffee houses. There's often waste wood that you can't use, right? Wood that's um, too too thin or it's the branches, it's the trunks that aren't useful for that higher value, kind of maybe more important use, but then you can use to make clean heat and clean power. So that's where I would expect you to see R and other projects. I think there's some announced projects out there making jet fuel out of wood chips. And so we're not definitely not the only ones looking in the Northwest and the Southeast, but that's really where the resource is, right? It's not, it's harder to move this stuff around than it is to move around say, a gas, which you can put in a pipeline, wood chips, it's like the wood chips in the playground, right? You can't, you're not going to have a pipeline like it's going to be in a truck or a train car. And so, you know, conceivably, would a decent amount of the project development focus on kind of co-locating the plant or the facility close to where that kind of feedstock is itself to reduce transportation and stuff like that? I mean, that's always plan one. So they call it the fiber basket is the industry term if you decide to <laughs> sound like an insider. So if you can uh, locate inside the fiber basket, you won't always. For example, there's a biomass, somewhat controversial biomass plants actually in Europe that actually take biomass from Canada or the US. So it is movable. It's just a cost question. I think the US, we are used to very cheap energy. Our energy is just way cheaper than pretty much anywhere else but the Middle East. Um, And so moving, it doesn't make sense. But if you're Japan, right? And you have the option between importing liquefied natural gas from Qatar, like all of your options involve a lot of transport. <laughs> and so you actually might transport wood chips, right? Yeah. And so it's not a firm rule, but you know, you always prefer. And like when we're looking at projects, you know, we want to locate it where you can have the lowest energy and the lowest cost for moving raw materials around. And when we talk about the kind of the carbon capture component, what's the percentage or the desired percentage of carbon capture from all those projects? Is it as high as 100%? Is it somewhere in the 90s? What's sort of the goal on that front? We try and get as close to 100 as possible. There's 
almost nothing in nature is a hundred. <laughs> like just you, you think you got a hundred and it's actually like ninety nine point nine or ninety nine point five. Like silly things like CO two is dissolved in water that goes into a cooling tower, and so like it's pretty difficult to get exactly a hundred. But that's one of the things we really like about oxy combustion is because that CO two capture is inherent. It's a lot easier for us to get to ninety seven percent. 98% where, you know, you've functionally, like, you have more emissions from the trains bringing your raw materials in or upstream emissions become a bigger part of your footprint than the CO2, you know, uh, that the leaks out of the facility. So I would say almost nothing is 100, but we can get pretty darn close. Yeah. And then if you look at the kind of, as you said, if you look at the full life cycle and perhaps some of the emissions mitigation benefit from using, for instance, agricultural residue versus what might happen if it, you know, rots out on the open field and turns into methane emissions. Definitely still significant gains to be had on that front. I think that's another shift we're seeing in industry as everyone realizes we have a common enemy here, which is kind of global warming and climate change, which is we need to have common metrics in terms of how did what you do reduce that. And CO2 is the easy metric. But even that, it's like, okay, you have your CO2, you have the user of the product that you sell, the so-called scope three, you have products that you buy, like you might buy limestone, you might buy wood chips, or you might buy natural gas or steel for your wind turbines. And like, you have to account for all of that. And you want to say, okay, which of these emissions are my fault? (laughs) Or which of these do I have to claim responsibility for? So that as a society, we can look around and say, okay, if I'm comparing a biogas plant in Idaho with a wind farm in California, you know, you need to have some neutral scale that measures all the CO2 from all the different products. Also, probably all the methane, right? Probably, you know, when you get into agriculture, suddenly it like, it gets really messy because like those nitrogen runoff is all, also some of those can have global warming potential, right, for like different N2O or nitrous emissions. So it gets pretty complicated pretty fast, but I think it's also pretty exciting to like have this shared mission of let's stop the world from getting hotter like it's hot enough uh, and really look at all. Like there's a really cool thing that came out of the airlines. They were looking at, you know, the the clouds that come from behind the airplanes? Yeah, absolutely. Hot trails. Right. Some of those clouds absorb heat. Some of them don't. And they're like <laughs> looking at ways that they can optimize where and when they fly airplanes to not accidentally have the contrails, which are just water vapor. Where it's just, um, there's no mind control chemicals in there. It's just <laughs> clouds, right? Um, to not have that, imp- it's not a CO2 emission, right? But not have that cause additional heating because it's, it's getting hot enough. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's such a, it's equal parts grand challenge and grand opportunity to, as you said, try to take stock of all of these different factors and then figure out which ones perhaps are lower hanging fruit to make tweaks to make incremental gains versus make things incrementally worse. I'd be curious also to chat about kind of the, some folks draw a distinction between carbon capture from a point source and then carbon removal, removing or capturing CO2 from direct air. At what point did you all decide to also make that a kind of a core pillar of the business with calcite and removing CO2 directly from the atmosphere. So that was 2019. So I think 2019 is where we kind of threw our hat in the ring, both in trying to find a solution to direct air capture and actually finding one that we liked. I will admit that we were initially pretty skeptical that it made sense to pull CO2 from the air. I think we came at this <laughs> like many people do, where we're like, we're emitting pure CO2, high concentration CO2. 
like shouldn't we capture all that stuff first right <laughs> before we do the like more difficult thermodynamic and chemical task of like letting it emitting co2 letting it disperse all around the world and then trying to like pluck you know individual molecules that are you know 400 right. parts per million <laughs> means 400 parts per million molecules of gas like it's a needle or two in a haystack yeah. and i think we realized as we kind of 0.04 percent 0.04 percent we were kind of driven drawn to it by seeing there was a lot of people smart people were working on it and we didn't quite understand why and so we like to follow that curiosity like okay we don't immediately get this but other people we respect and are at examining it. and what we kind of realized when we looked closer is that it's an important niche right like carbon capture from the air is you know five percent of the solution or it's kind of something it's a last five last ten percent solution right by god we should build as many electric cars solar panels post-combustion capture plants nuclear plants you know energy efficient windows as we can to get us 80 or 90 percent of the way there because capturing a co2 from the air is always going to be expensive but what it does for you is a it gives you an option where there is no other option Right, so I kind of think that for air travel, for international air travel, where you're like crossing the Pacific, that it may well be cheaper to just pull the air from the air after the plane has flown <laughs> than to build an entirely new supply chain for fuel that meets all of the strict safety and density requirements of jet fuel. And so what it does is it gives you that decarbonization lever of last resort and puts a cost ceiling. Whereas if we can capture CO2 from the air for $200, you shouldn't have to decarbonize anything for more than $200, right? And so that you put a cost ceiling on the whole effort. And also it gives you the button you can click that will go in reverse, right? Unlike post-combustion capture or, or wind turbines or, you know, other decarbonization tools, this one, if we wanted to, if we reach 2070 and we realize we overshot a little too much, this is the industry that you would scale up in order to go back 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 parts per million in the stratosphere and in the upper atmosphere, right? So in some sense, you're like, well, why? that all makes sense, Adam. Like, why now? I think the issue is if you wanted to be ready by 2050, you have to start 10 years ago. Like, we're late. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. this is a whole new, like, this isn't just like scaling up something we already know how to make. It's a new industry, new chemistry. And so you kind of have to start. You have to start now. So that that's how our perspective on it changed. We're really excited about the calcite solution. So we um, are using a calcium-based solid sorbent. And the thing we like about it is that calcium is old. Like calcium, like it is like the OG material. Like the <laughs> Romans, like they were using calcium and those, you know, those buildings still stand. So the humanity has had a very long time to build up expertise in how to manage what they call calcium lime. So like the different versions of lime, chemically it's calcium oxide or calcium hydroxide. And we really like that because we always partner, right? We're partnering with suppliers, we're partnering with equipment providers, and we don't have to build a whole new supply chain. So yes, we have a new technology we have to build that's utilizing calcium in a new way to pull CO2 out of the ambient air. And that creates limestone, calcium carbonate. You might have a new marble countertops in a different form. We then take that calcium carbonate, we heat it up really hot to pull the CO2 off so it can eject it underground. So CO2 goes from the air into this, temporarily into the stone, and then we pull it off, inject it underground, and that regenerates for us more calcium that's now hungry for CO2, and we can cycle back in the system. So we're really excited about it, both because the equipment and the supply chain is really mature. It's also how nature manages the carbon cycle. If you were to look back and say, okay, 
we care about doing this because we want this to work on human timescales. You know, we don't want to wait 50 million years for the Earth to re-regulate. But if we d- it would re-regulate, and it actually does that through calcium. So calcium carbonate and calcium bicarbonate are the kind of permanent long-term storage that cycles CO2 through planet Earth. And so we're also, you know, operating at something that we, we know it can operate at these scales. There's plenty of calcium. And there's a poetic, something poetic about being able to harness that natural process, but accelerate it to re-regulate CO2 on a scale that matters for us and our kids and our grandkids. Often those are some of the technologies that I, I get most excited about when I hear folks commercializing them in the modern day are ones that you know, leverage a natural process or a natural system in some respect and sort of build on top of it. It makes a lot of sense that you know, we've dysregulated the planet in many ways, and now we're trying to kind of harness some of its innate wisdom, if you will, to, to re-regulate it. A couple of questions I have are, for one, you know, how many times can you cycle with the same material before perhaps it loses some of its capturing ability or process? Or is that something that you can fundamentally cycle a lot of times with the same material before you have to change it out again? That's a great, very technical and insightful question, Nick. Yeah, so this is sort of <laughs> cycling. This is true across different kinds of carbon capture. Very true for us with our calcium-based direct air capture approach. You can't cycle it forever. Honestly, we kind of expect more to have, you know, we'll have a little purge where, okay, you know, we'll take 5 or 10% of the calcium out of the cycle each go-around. And that way you make it so that, you know, calcium, maybe, maybe it only cycles 5 or 10 times. It might cycle 20 times. It might cycle 50 times. It's not going to cycle 1,000 times. You're going to take some of it out mechanically, like you lose a little bit in a kiln, like if you're running a kiln, which is basically part of our cycle, you're going to have a little bit of fines or what they call them, the really small particles that kind of come off. And so we'll, we'll lose some mechanically. We haven't really seen many sorbent regeneration issues. So right now I would tell you that it's probably going to be more about mechanical integrity uh, of the sorbent that we're paying attention to, but eventually it's going to break down. I would say as long as you cycle it a couple of times, it doesn't hugely matter to the economics. If we need to replace this sorbent, this is another thing we like about calcite, we have to go get limestone. Right. Limestone is, <laughs> I think, the cheapest, like the single cheapest thing on earth you can buy. <laughs> like it's extremely low cost. Like it is, it's what they use to like put under roads, right? It's called road base, right? It's a like crushed stone. There are billions and billions of tons of aggregate and some of such materials that are processed. And so from a cost perspective and a sustainability perspective, you can regenerate, you know, five or 10% of that calcium. The U.S. has great limestone supply. So a lot of the places we're in a DAC hub. So some of our exciting news is we were announced as a winner as part of this consortium for the CDAC hub. Uh, shout out to the Department of Energy for building such a great program to move the whole direct air capture industry forward. That's down in Alabama. So we were in Southern Alabama we are studying whether we, we can build a 50,000-ton-a-year DAC plant. That means every single year, 50,000 tons of CO2 from the air through our plant and into the ground. Alabama also has a fantastic limestone resource. And so some one of the bigger producers of limestone a little bit north of where we are. And so we also are right near that supply chain, so we don't have far to move. If we do need to regenerate new calcium, uh, we're kind of in the heart of the industry in Alabama. And one other question I had was on the kind of the storage side. Is it possible to use kind of a fundamentally similar playbook for the storage technology and infrastructure that you would use with the carbon capture plants? So is there some kind of like cross-sharing of expertise or does it look somewhat different when you're storing the CO2 capture from the ambient air? 
It's a great question, Nick. I mean, I think a lot of things are really different in capturing CO2 from power plants, steel plants than from the air. The one thing that's the same is the transport and storage. So the CO2 specification you have to hit, the pipelines, injecting it into sandstone, which is the porous sandstone is typically where this goes. That's all the same. I think we're going to see hubs of carbon capture projects. Right Where we're located, there's a number of other carbon capture projects already in, in being studied in the area for post-combustion on power plants, for example, just a couple of miles away. And so you can share infrastructure. Just like power lines, right? Power lines serve many different power plants. And so you end up, you know, with a lot of different kinds of technologies that use the same infrastructure. Same with, with carbon capture. And so I think that's one way in which the industry is very collaborative, which is the more people who build carbon capture projects, not only is that good for pulling CO2, you know, or reducing CO2, which we all care about as people who live on the planet, it also creates more infrastructure for all of us to use, right? It builds more pipelines. It creates more sequestration infrastructure. So that's all really helpful. The thing I would say is different is that typically if you're building a post-combustion capture, you don't necessarily have a choice for where to locate it. Like you're going to put it where the cement plant already is, always has been, was for 50 years. And you then have to like figure out, can I move the CO2 somewhere where I can store it? Right. And so that's a big challenge with post-combustion these industries have to be in certain places, right? The demand for cement, like you need cement plants across the country. Like that's just how it is. Direct air capture is not the same. Like you don't need direct air capture plants in every state, right? The, the, the air mixes fine on its own. If you wanted to, you could put it all in a state or two, right? And clean the air of the country from, you know, from Texas or from Alabama, or from Hawaii, <laughs> from, you know, from whatever state you decide is the right place to do this. And so, I think that helps a lot on the CO2 storage side because we can put the plants where the storage is. And it really helps on the community engagement side of a big part of the energy transition is going to be building lots of new stuff, new plants, new factories, new power lines. That's great. It means more jobs. It means more economic development. But you also need to make sure you do that in a way where it's a positive impact on the places where you get built and not a negative one. And a nice thing with direct air capture, A, we have a clean slate. We've never really done this before, so you know it's not like we've got a history to deal with. And then plenty of other parts of the energy sector have a not so good history that we really need to be, you know, compensating for. And there's a lot of environmental justice concerns of people who've been screwed over, frankly, by projects. We don't have that, and we can put it where people want us, right? Like we really should be able to. I like really feel optimistic that we these facilities they can't go everywhere, but there's a number of options. We should be able to put these in places where. The economics are good and people are happy to have them. And we're you know, working with the local universities and doing good things for the places that we're going to be. Because if people don't want us to build clean energy infrastructure, we're not going to be able to scale it up the speed we need from here to 2050. It'll just be too slow and it's not the right thing to do. Right. Yeah, it's an important part of scaling all of this is that it's not just necessarily an environmental benefit or that it pencils economically, but that it's also beneficial to local communities. Because as you said, that's such an integral, it's not just the right thing to do, it's an integral part of how you actually scale up successfully if you want to start with a 50,000 ton annual capacity plant and then build 10 more of those or increase the capacity by another 10x again. You know, That first one has to work on a number of different across a number of different variables for the, the future growth to then be tenable. That's right. I was going to transition us to hydrogen. So I'm excited to learn from you on this front because unlike 
you know, perhaps carbon removal and capture where I've spent a little bit more time. I definitely feel more green on the hydrogen side of things. So I would love to hear from you what's happening in that space. So hydrogen is the lightest molecule we have, right? And it's a really exciting potential energy carrier and fuel source for the future. When you are, you know, filling up your car with gasoline or burning a power plant, you have hydrocarbons, right? That's what they're called. The hydrogen is where the energy is, right? And the carbon is where the problem is from. You have the hydro and the carbon. If you have hydrogen as a direct fuel, you have that energy, right? It'll burn really hot. There's no carbon. Right, so you can, that's why people have been really entranced with hydrogen for a long time. Is that you look at it, it just seems like the elegant right answer. I think the challenges about it is that it is a pain in the butt to deal with. It is extremely <laughs> expensive to handle. It likes to escape. It's hard to compress. Uh, and so, you know, if it wasn't, if CO two wasn't a problem, we probably wouldn't be using hydrogen. Uh, it's just got some challenges other fuels don't have. I think one of the big questions in hydrogen is what's it for? Like, there's a lot of different ways we can decarbonize different industries. There is nothing that is a solve-all, right? We're going to need 10 different solutions, and even in different countries, right? Solar is a great solution in the U.S. We work very closely in South Korea with one of our major investors, a South Korean. There's not really enough land. Like, (laughs) you, You really end up needing lots of different solutions, both for different industries, but also because we're supposed to decarbonize every single country in the world, right? And they just like, the resources they have and the needs they have are are pretty different. So for hydrogen, I think there are a lot of areas that sound good, but don't make a lot of sense. And so I think that's one of the things the industry is trying to figure out and and policymakers is where do we use it and where do we not use it? I think if I were a betting man, I would bet on, first off, existing uses. These are the things you know (laughs) you need it for. Fertilizer is probably the biggest and most important and refining. So you use hydrogen to make jet fuels and refined liquid fuels. You use it to make fertilizer to grow food for people to eat. Those are the things we already needed for today. We are really bullish on ammonia. Ammonia is kind of the building block of those fertilizers, but also it's an easier way to handle that hydrogen. So ammonia, the chemical formula, if you'll bear with me for a second, is NH3. There's no C in it. It is uh, sans carbon and you can burn it. So we think ammonia is not just a fertilizer. It's also going to be a way to move and use hydrogen. That could be moving hydrogen from the U.S. to Europe as ammonia and then converting it back into hydrogen so they can use that to run steel plants, right, or to run, run fertilizer plants, or it could be using ammonia as a fuel itself. So the three places I'd be optimistic on hydrogen, the first is ammonia as a marine fuel. We need to decarbonize the ships that move containers all around the world, these giant, like that evergreen ship that got stuck in the canal famously, right? Like those giant ships, they need fuel. Right now they use pretty dirty fuel. Ammonia is a really good candidate that would hit all of the different criteria you need for, you know, moving a ship across the globe for 30 days and wouldn't have any CO2 associated. That alone would like 10x the global production, probably more than that, of ammonia. So it's a really huge opportunity. And it's just a lot bigger than the current uses of ammonia. So we need a lot more ammonia plants. The second of which is for places that don't have CO2 storage, hydrogen is really useful. So let's say you make clean hydrogen, clean ammonia in the U.S. from renewable power. You move it somewhere like Japan where they don't have CO2 storage. They don't have low-cost fossil fuels. They don't have space to build solar wind turbines. So I think that that use, you're seeing Japan and Korea in particular, look at co- replacing coal with ammonia. 
Um, it's not cheap, right? I don't think you do that in the U.S. It's a pretty expensive solution, but all of their solutions are expensive. <laughs> the U.S. is in a really good position. We just got pretty lucky in terms of what's above and below the soil, and just, we have a lot of land. And so I think ammonia, co-firing, and coal plants, replacing coal, something everybody wants to do to replace unabated coal. And the third thing is an energy carrier, which is that you could, there's probably be some other use in hydrogen, maybe to make steel or things that are really high temperature that you can't necessarily electrify. So you move that hydrogen as ammonia and convert it back. So that's how we're thinking about it. There's a lot of different ways to make that hydrogen. So green hydrogen is great. If you have abundant solar and wind, you can convert that into hydrogen and then you can move that around. And now you've got hydrogen that came from the air, the sun and the wind. It's fantastic. You do need a really good renewable resource. So I think the challenge with that one is that you probably don't want to run that just on solar panels. It's pretty difficult because then all this equipment you're building to make ammonia and make hydrogen, you can only run in the day, right? And at night, you shut it off or you have to store the hydrogen. Like it gets difficult engineering and that leads to cost difficulties. But if you have somewhere that's both sunny and windy or somewhere where you have geothermal, like I think it's a great way if you have excess renewable resources that are stranded and run a lot of the time, right? I think it's a pretty bad solution for if you have like wasted energy in California, like what's called curtailed power of like, oh, you know, every day we have 2% more solar than we need. Can we make it into hydrogen? I really don't think so. Like, I think the hydrogen infrastructure is so expensive, you're going to want to run it reliably. So you're probably going to have a dedicated supply rather than picking up the dregs, right, from the power sector. Probably a better use case for deploying all the batteries, which they already are in California. Exactly. Hydrogen is great for a lot of things. I don't think it's a great energy storage means. It's very expensive. It's very energy intensive. Like, it's good for moving energy across space. I wouldn't think of it so much as moving it across time, at least from electricity. We're focused, as we often are, on things that use liquid fuels, so natural gas to hydrogen. Same guy, Rodney Allen, invented the Allen cycle, really brilliant guy. He also invented this thing called 8RH2, so eight rivers hydrogen, a play on that, which takes a lot of the same principles in the Allen cycle of using CO2 as a working fluid and designing with the end in mind, starting the design to say, we know we don't want to release CO2, how do we make hydrogen? When people were inventing the previous versions, they didn't care. They didn't know that, you know, in the 40s or 50s, that CO2 was a warming gas. That wasn't wasn't part of the equation. Knowing that, we have something called a carbon convective reformer. So the CO2 provides the heat and helps heat up catalysts to convert natural gas to hydrogen with all the CO2 captured. So this is, if we're going to apply colors, it's blue hydrogen. I think what's more important is the carbon intensity. We can get that hydrogen really, really clean. So we can make that in the U.S. You know, we're looking at projects where we'd be exporting that as ammonia around the world, particularly the East Asia, places like Japan and Korea. is something we think has really high potential. And we're just really excited about the technology. We think there's a lot of places where people will come and license that technology from us to replace their existing hydrogen production that was already running on natural gas, but emitting the CO2 with 8RH2 and that carbon convective reformer. It also reduces air pollution. So the other thing we really like about oxy combustion, it's not just a CO2 solution. If you burn your fuel in air, you get air pollution, you get NOx and SOx. If you burn your fuel in oxygen, you don't even have a smokestack, right? Like there's no smoke. <laughs> and so there's local environmental benefits. And it's something I'm passionate about, which is climate change is a really big problem. Air pollution is also a really big problem. 
Uh, and we don't think about it as much in the U.S. because in many places, not all places, but in many, we've really gotten it under control. But I think the wildfires people are seeing, you know, where you have these days and weeks, I mean, even in New York this year, right, where you have uh, bad air days. It's not good. <laughs> and it's not the right way for us to be fueling our lives. It's cre- creating excess air pollution. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Hopefully we get to a, a future state where there's ammonia-powered ships carrying ammonia as an energy carrier to some of those countries <laughs> that don't have the, the yeah. same resources that the U.S. or other countries, for instance, are, are endowed with. I'd be curious to now to zoom out a little bit, you know, thinking on perhaps a three- or a five-year timeline. Given that there's three pillars to the business, this might be a slightly complex answer, but I'm curious in your mind how you sort of measure success. Like, What are some metrics perhaps that you'd love to see the company hit or help facilitate by, say, 2028? Uh, so it's happily simple, especially my job is strategy. So <laughs> if it was complicated, that would be my job would be complicated here. We need to have the first plant of every technology up and running. I mean, I think it's that simple is that in the next five-ish years, you want to have the first calcite plant. We want to watch NetPower be successful with their first plant. We want to have the first 8RH2 plant, the first, you know, solid fuels plant, the alum cycle running on biomass. Like that's the push on the existing technologies is get the first plant up. Right, The first plant's the hardest. We're pretty involved in all the first plants. For many of these technologies, we'll then license it to third parties so that you know, big power companies and energy companies can go build these themselves. They're all going to wait for us to have a reference plant that says, hey, we want to build. Everybody wants to be first to be second, Nick. <laughs> That's just the dynamic of, look, let us come see the plant that you built that works. We can go knock on it. We can go see what you learned, and then we'll go build a dozen. And so I think that really the focus is for the existing technologies, find a couple projects to advance them with, and then have at least one of those projects be successful so we can have a first plan up. And then you're you know locked and loaded and ready to scale. At the same time, I don't think these are our last technologies, right? So I think you also want to you know move other technologies to the point where these ones are today, where they're ready for their first plant. And just in general, build our capacities to do this again and again. Right? There's a lot of issues in decarbonization across steel, building materials, transportation. I mean, it's just, it's the work of a lifetime here. And so if we're successful on these couple, not only will we have set ourselves up to help, you know, reduce a gigaton of CO2, we'll also have set ourselves up, ourselves up to do it again. And I think that's something I really love about the Rivers model that I think is more unique is we're not a one-trick pony, right? And but we're also not a conglomerate. We're not, um, you know, ExxonMobil or NextEra or one of these giant behemoths. We work on many technologies, and we find that in doing that, there's a lot of learning. Stuff we learn from doing net power on the alum cycle, they're helping us on 8RH2 and helping us on calcite. So we get to take those learnings from the first time we did this a couple of years ago, and it's just cross-functional expertise. I think we found there to be a lot of juice to squeeze when you're combining industries. There's things people know about making paper and things people know about, you know, making steam or you know, running power plants. And often some of the good ideas you need to for your power plant or your direct air capture plant or your hydrogen plant, they come from a different industry or they, they had some other problem they had to solve or some other expertise or some new material. And so that's something we, A, it's, it's pretty fun. Um, a lot of novelty, you know, learning every day. And also we found to be pretty productive and helping up with, with come up with new things. Excited to see those first plants across applications up and running sooner rather than later, hopefully, and appreciate that you know, good strategist has a simple answer to the kind of key metrics and key goals question. My final question, which perhaps this one will be a little bit more 
not complicated, but complex is when you think about what the key challenges are that you face in that same time span, what are the things that could hold up some of this deployment? A bunch of things come to my mind, but I'm curious what comes to your mind. It's a great question. I think hard technology, I think we maybe call it hard tech because it is like physically hard, where like you can actually knock on the steel. It's also hard, <laughs> like from a difficulty perspective. I think the thing I love about it is it touches the whole world. But one of the challenges is you're just managing dozens of risks, right? We're like, oh, maybe your plan needed nickel and the nickel market like kind of literally exploded last year, <laughs> right? And all of a sudden, like you just, you're touching commodity markets ranging from metals to rocks to fuels to electricity, labor markets, communities. So there's just this big multifactorial problem. I think to boil that down for us, is just about execution. I think from here to the next five years, like we need to execute flawlessly and we need to be really focused and focus on that execution. In that, that will mean handling a dozen fires that come up, right? <laughs> on water supply, on commodities, on labor. I mean, like right now, the other thing I'm sure of, Nick, is the things I worry about now will not be the things I worry about in two years. Like these things come in cycles of like, is there too much labor? Is there not enough labor? Is power too expensive? You know, is power too cheap? I think right now people are pretty worried about supply chain. And I think we, we are as well in terms of everyone's trying to build a lot of similar infrastructure. And then it just means that you you find long lead items. You find a compressor or a transformer or some kind of metal that you assume you could build, you could buy it and be there in nine months and instead it's four years. And you're like, no, I don't have four years. Like, I'm not going to. So dealing with those kind of things, but that really comes down to, you know, nimble and focused execution, or we can focus on the most important things first and not, our plan has to be to get punched in the face and then keep going. Like you're going to get punched in the face, you know, to crib Mike Tyson a little bit here. And so just setting up an organization and a set of teams, we're ready for that. We're excited about that. When those things happen, when there's a global pandemic, right? That totally changes how you work because the whole decarbonization challenge is going to happen throughout the world, just doing its thing, right? There's wars, pandemics, supply chain crises, like financial crashes and booms, and all those things are going to keep happening. And we have to hit our decarbonization targets anyway. Like we don't get to say, oh, we're taking two years off because there's a new respiratory, you know, disease. We have to, so that's the challenge. And I'm hoping that's the solution there. And a lot of that's also, you know, I'm standing here, we have an amazing team, right? And so really getting the right people here who are, I think, also motivated every day to, to get to work on something that really matters. Uh, and all putting in the work to, to deal with the challenges they come up. And then a couple of years later, you got a you know, ribbon cutting you get to go to and, and see a plant, you know, making power and catching CO2. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to hopefully attend one of those ribbon cutting ceremonies. It's been a fun conversation, Adam. Thanks so much for joining. For folks listening in that are interested in the work that Eight Rivers does or in keeping along with the progress, what's the best place for them to keep an eye out? Yeah, so we've got a beautiful website at arivers.com, but it's probably social media. So whether you're on LinkedIn more professionally or you want to follow us on Twitter, we probably have an Instagram at that point. I'll be honest, I'm not on the gram, so I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Adam, thanks so much for joining. And as I said, excited to track the progress and we'll check back in in a year or so and do it again to, to see what new opportunities and new challenges have arisen in that time frame. <laughs> Sounds great, Nick. Really appreciated the conversation. Cheers. 
Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.